But what you can do is just push them, is to just let them know, like, I believe in you. Even if you don't believe in yourself, I believe in you. And I think that will really help them, you know, not just gain that confidence academically, but also in themselves. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. In this special episode of Highest Aspirations, we feature one of our five Elevation Scholarship winners, Paula Gutierrez. Paula recently graduated from Taquitz High School in Hemet, California. She is currently attending UCLA, where she is studying human biology on a pre-med track. As an aspiring physician, she looks forward to caring for people in low-income communities in the future. As you'll hear in our conversation, Paula surfaces some of the challenges she has faced as a multilingual learner. But she also talks about many of the assets she and her fellow students bring to their schools and communities. She also offers some useful advice to educators about how they can best support their multilingual learners and put them on a path to success. As such, this conversation is particularly important for listeners who work with multilingual learners of any age. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. We hope you enjoy this conversation with 2021 scholarship winner, Paula Gutierrez. Paula Gutierrez, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations and congratulations on winning one of our Elevation Scholarships this year. Hi, thank you. So happy to be here. It's really great to have you. Um, I was saying when we first chatted, I, I always love these opportunities to chat with students who are moving on to the next step in their lives. I was a high school teacher for years and I missed these conversations. So excited to dive in. Um, let's start from the beginning. So talk a little bit about your childhood. Um, you spent your early years on the border in El Paso, in Texas, where you spoke mostly Spanish. Um, sounds like that from our last conversation. And then you moved to Southern California at age nine. Um, curious as to how that affected your educational experience going from one environment to the next, specifically as it relates to language and culture, because you had told me that there were some big shifts there, right? Oh, yes. Um, I think... One of the biggest changes I would have to say um, was just from moving from one side to the other side is just losing that authenticity with my Mexican culture. I think being right next to the border, you know, you know, you're just you're right there. You're right next to your native country and you're able to go there. You're able to, you know, speak with the people that come from where you come from. It's also authentic if you're able to, you know, even the food's authentic, you know? And then you come, you, you know, I moved to California and I noticed that authenticity kind of, it caused it to dissipate. And I think that was where some of the issues kind of started for me um, in terms of, you know, being able to, you know, reach that authenticity again. And in terms of language, I would have to say, you know, in Texas, you know, it's very, it, the norm is just pretty much being able to, you know, just go to school in Spanish. Most of our schools are in Spanish. And I come to California and the primary language is English. So I think that's where another problem, not a problem, but kind of an issue arose because, you know, then I would have to start ELD and English language development for those out there, just to clarify. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that's where, um, the issues arose, but I think that's what kind of pushed me to just kind of, you know, get better, 
each and every day. It pushed me to, you know, read a lot of books um, so that I was able to just kind of get proficient in my English and move on with my life in California. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. Thanks for that. That's a really, and I'm, there's a lot of students who have experienced similar um, challenges or experiences, whether it be moving from Texas to California or other states or even other countries to other countries. So let's dive in a little bit with that. I'm curious about the, the particularly the, the language piece and the language challenges that you had. Were you able to use informal language, language in English to connect with your peers in those, in those earlier years? Um, and or was it more difficult to master the academic language that you'd need to be successful in school? Because those are two very different things. And educators talk about those all the time. So I'm curious to hear about your experience. Age nine, that's a really formative time where you're really making connections with people um, and school starting to become, you know, you got to start to learn some some important content. You have to have the language to do that. So what was the difference between the informal and the, and the academic language for you there? Yeah, um, I have to say I struggled more with the informal um, I think in terms of academic, I was I was set to go kind of in a way because I you're read a, a big lot. reader. Yeah. yeah, I'm a big reader. I read a lot. So, you know, in the books, it's not informal. You know, it's going to be proper grammar. It's going to be, you know, just everything formal. So I think that academic language, it was just kind of a much more easier for me because I was able to, you know, remember what I was reading and just kind of be able to, you know, apply it to what I was learning in terms of like my English classes and writing. Um, in terms of the informal, I would have to say that was where I struggled a little bit more because that's where it comes to, you know, you have to speak to people and people don't speak formal sometimes, especially being, you know, Gen Z, like people do not, be, a lot of our, you know, a lot of my peers do not speak formal as their like normal, you know, day-to-day -day interactions. Um, but I think what really helped with that um, is I think just having someone, just like your personal little, informal dictionary I, I would like to call it just kind of have someone you can trust go to um like oh what does this mean um oh um what is you know just kind of having someone to you know find the meaning of informal language that's just what i kind of did and for me it, it started with like my peers um i just found people that i could really trust and that's where i was able to just kind of find guidance in how to you know get good interactions with my peers at such a young age right yeah, you know, it's interesting because your situation is, um, I'm sure it's the case with a lot of students, but it's its probably the uh, the less common situation. I think more students that we experience have have problems with that academic language. Um, but and it's for the, I think that the, the main takeaway here is because you were a big reader and you're just kind of always, it sounds like academically inclined and motivated to do those things. You didn't have those those struggles, but those informal language struggles are real because as we've seen over the last year and a half, particularly, you know, with the pandemic and school being uh, so strange for lack of a better term, that social emotional piece um, is really, really important. Making connections with your peers, probably particularly for somebody like you who came from one environment and had to move into the other and sort of lost a part of, um, I don't know about loss, but, but, but certainly there must've been a sense of loss of your culture there in El Paso. You mentioned being able to go back and forth. Um, and you, you described to me when we chatted informally last week about some, some struggles that you had as you transitioned into high school. Um, you, you mentioned anxiety, hyper-awareness of being different from others in your community, and really, really significant and pretty profound culture shock. And these struggles, um, whether, you're, whether it's an academic language or an informal language, these struggles are not uncommon, unfortunately, for, for students, particularly multilingual learners like you. 
So I'd love, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how um, that they impacted you at that time, because I think it's important for educators to hear this, not just the academic piece, but those real struggles that all students have, and maybe particularly students who are kind of transitioning from one language and culture to the other. Yeah, um, I would have to say definitely I, I struggled a lot. And I think that's what I, the people who knew me um, or know me, they they wouldn't really catch that on. And I think I was I was really good at hiding it. I, on the outside, I looked very calm and collective. And on the yeah. inside, I was terrified. That's and really think, interesting. That's yeah. really interesting and important to note. Sorry, continue. Yeah. Yeah, of course. It, and I think that's kind of the piece I want to touch on, especially for all those educators and, you know, you know, school administrators, who, whoever is listening out there today. I think I really want to touch on that is just, you know, to remember there's always there's always a backstory. There's always something that's going through. And I think a lot of, you know, educators seem to be very patient, especially, you know, being within that job. But I think just having that in the back of your mind, you know, students and, you know, educators too, school, everyone is going through something that you have no idea about. Uh, but moving forward, um, I struggled a lot with my anxiety, you know, waking up, I always had, you know, that just that tightness in my stomach. You know, I have the, you know, the palms, I struggled, you know, just all the nausea, the the hyperventilating, everything, symptoms of anxiety I had. And I think I, one of the reasons that I had that was one, you know, I was starting high school. I think that's one of the scariest things for most students because it's just a completely different ball game mm -hmm. um, in terms of like middle school and elementary school. Two, I was in a different city um, in one of the highest crime rates in California. And I grew up in El Paso, which was so much of a tight knit community. So coming to, you know, a community like this where, you know, it's a lot of gang violence, a lot of drugs, a lot of addiction, um, I just have a lot of instances that I had never been in. Mm -hmm. I saw, I, you know, face to face, I saw like a, a gang violence fight right in front of me. And I do, it was just, it was a big shock for me. It was a big culture shock because I had never witnessed like that. I was 13, 14 at the time. And I just, I was terrified. I was sure. scared. I was dramatic. So yeah. Cool. Right. And, you know, not to blame the school or anything, but just our community. That's just how it was out here. Um, and I struggled a lot. I felt a lot of anxiety. And, you know, there's a lot of, I'm, I know for a fact, you know, when I was little, little me would have thought I'm the only one going through this. But growing up, as I spoke more about it, I noticed that there were so many other students that felt the same way as me. And, you know, so please, all those educators, check in on your students beyond the academic. And I think um, what was able to help me was just being able to with a teacher i think uh, one of the one of these instances a teacher really opened up to me um and she because i i there was a point where i was just like i need to talk to someone i need mm -hmm. to tell someone what, what i'm going through and i just kind of opened up to my spanish teacher you know the weird thing <laughs> my spanish teacher um and that's when she opened up to me and that vulnerability between, you know, teachers and students, that was something I had never experienced before. And I think it had such a positive impact on me. She told me that, you know, she almost lost her first teaching job because of anxiety. And that was, that to me, you know, was just her vulnerability to me as a student at such a young age was just really eye-opening to me because here she is, you know, a grown, a grown woman with such 
very educated, you know, well put together. And, you know, she's going through the same struggles as me. And I think that's just, that was so kind of her. And, you know, we kind of, we kind of relied on each other in a way, sort of, you know, not, Mm -hmm. not out there, but just in a very subtle way, we relied on each other. We would check up on each other, like, oh, how are you doing today? Oh, you know, I'm feeling this way. And I think for all those educators out there, I urge you to, you know, become vulnerable with your students. And I, I think that will have such a positive impact in terms of relationships you have with them. They'll have someone they can associate themselves with, you know, whether it be your struggles with, you know, mental illness or, um, you know, uh, maybe you grew up in a certain community, you know, maybe you ha- you also had a culture shock. And I think obviously there's always a certain extent to like the certain barriers where you can or cannot share. But I think whatever you feel comfortable with sharing, share that with your students because that you have no idea what kind of impact you can have them. So today I urge you to share something with your students, you know, say something that you've been through and just just kind of see their reactions. And I think you can build such greater relationships with your students that way. Yeah, that's so great. I mean, I would encourage people to just go back two minutes and listen to that again, uh, particularly those of you who are about to, you know, open open the doors to your classroom, maybe for the first time in a long time, and you're going to have students who are, uh, are dealing with a lot of different kinds of trauma, um, both in their own personal lives that are not related to the pandemic, but then pandemic related as well. And there's, there's so much I want to say, you actually got into my next question, which is great, because there's, there's just so much I want to say about um, or unpack about what you just said, you know, it, it, there has been such a focus over the last year. And I think it's wonderful that there has been over the p- importance of relationship building. And here we are about to start a school year or starting a school year. And that's the most important thing. I think that's kind of agreed upon that we can do. You can't learn if you're a student, unless you feel comfortable, you can't feel, feel comfortable unless you have some kind of relationship, both with the teacher that you're working with or teachers that you're working with, and also with your peers. Um, And so everything that you're saying just reinforces that from the student perspective. There's lots of research out there that says it. There's lots of papers. There's lots of classes that talk about it. But here you are, somebody who's been, you know, very academically successful, about to take a really exciting step, which we'll talk about later, being vulnerable vulnerable about your own experiences and telling us that it was the vulnerability of another teacher or of a teacher that really helped you get through it. And I think... What we need to feel, think about as educators is, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of people listening now who are saying, well, you know, in my school, I'm not sure I can really be that vulnerable. I have to toe a certain line. I have to be sort of the authority figure. And I think that we have to begin to really explore that. And a lot of that comes to, and you're talking about individual educators, which I think is really important, but you also mentioned administrators. What about school culture? You know, do you have a culture of caring, of relationship building, is it that um, you know you can take that time without worrying about all the content and the testing that you need to go through? And there's just so many questions here. But what I really appreciate um, about what you said is that it's such a simple thing. It's such a simple thing, and I really hope that um, you didn't mention the teacher's name, and you don't have to if you don't want to. But I hope that she's listening because. Um, that is going to mean a tremendous amount to her because she's had a significant impact. Um, and that, and that's, and that's so crucially important. And so I really appreciate you bringing that up. I and mean, I think that might be to me, one of the most important takeaways as we move, move forward. And, and I'm going to stop talking now because I could continue talking about this forever. And this is about you, but I, I really, <laughs> really do appreciate you bringing it up. 
So let's get back to, um, you know, one of the things that's really interesting, I think, about your experience is that you mentioned to me when we talked last time something that I think is really important and will and will ring true in a lot of places. It sounds like, in many ways, part of the recipe of your success was being able to enroll, overcome barriers that you need to overcome to enroll in honors and AP classes in high school, and that for better or for worse, it's another conversation for another time, can be kind of the ticket to a successful experience and a successful higher educational experience. Um, it has a huge influence regardless. So my question is, how were you in, in, able to enroll in those classes? Um, and it sounds like, you know, it has, it has a lot to do with your reading and your academic just sort of motivation. But I guess more importantly, what advice would you give to teachers and administrators about allowing more academically, culturally, linguistically diverse groups of students um, to have access to those rigorous academic courses like AP courses and honors courses? Yeah, uh, definitely. So I would say, uh, you know, freshman year, I was sitting in my counselor's office, you know, setting up those courses. And I originally wanted to take, um, I believe like a little, like a Spanish for native speakers, some class like that. And she was like, no, why don't, why don't you take um, AP Human Geography? And in my head, I was thinking, oh, I'm just a freshman. I'm, I'm, there's no, AP is for juniors and seniors. Like, I, I'm not ready for that. She was like, no, 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 this is a good one. This is an intro class. I know you'll do great. And still, I was just kind of like, no, I don't think so. I think, I think I'm not ready there. I'm not there yet. And she just, she persisted and she urged me. She was like, no, like you got this. I know it's a great intro class. And until I just, I gave in, I was like, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna give this a month. If this is too hard, I'll switch up. And that was our, that was our brief. And uh, my first couple of days, um, I struggled. Not in terms of academic, but you know, it was, a, it was just that anxiety. Imposter syndrome, do I belong here? Yeah. Yes. Um, and also that, and of course my anxiety not just the academic, but, you know, again, as I spoke earlier, just that environment, that was really what I struggled with that affected me academically, because sometimes I just couldn't concentrate because that anxiety was just so prominent, you know, um, but I think I, I stuck to it and I fell in love with the class. I loved it because it was just such a high aspect of just learning about the geography of class. I say that to say this, that as educators, as school administrators, I my advice would be to just don't limit the potential of these students just because they don't speak the same language. I say that because a lot of a lot of educators, and I, I say that from personal experience, when you, when educators and you know administrators, they see students that are not able to you know be so proficient in, you know, a primary language. I feel like there's just kind of like this, like this subtle, the subtle way of like limiting our students. Mm -hmm. I think that's something we need to change. You know, it's not direct, but it's subtle. Sure. And I think we need to stop that. I think what we need to do is we need to start urging them. Although they're not proficient, give it a try. Give it two weeks, give it a month, see where you feel. And obviously there's certain concepts that you have to meet. Obviously if the student speaks no English, they're obviously not gonna be so successful in an AP English language exam. But um, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's 
points where, you know, you know, like they're going to be able to do this. You know, it all comes down to just know the context of the students. But what I'm trying to urge is to just don't limit our students. Right. Give them that, that push like my counselor did. And I'm so grateful for her because obviously I would have not had that good foundation in my high school early on to, you know, really push me to excel in, you know, my later years in high school. Um, so yes, definitely push, you know, be the one, a lot of these students at an early age do not have that good confidence. They don't have that good self-esteem yet developed. And it's not your job to give them that confidence yet. You know, it's all just an internal progress thing that they need to do themselves. But what you can do is just push them is to mm-hmm. just let them know, like, I believe in you. Even if you don't believe in yourself, I believe in you. And I think that will really help them, you know, not just gain that confidence academically, but also in themselves. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, it reminded me of a, I forget who I was speaking with, but it was somebody on the podcast and I'll have to figure out who it was, an expert, a well-respected, um, I think it was a, uh, an educator, a researcher and or consultant. And they said, you know, so many um, teachers of multilingual learners are trying to protect their students, you know, the, and that's why they don't give them access to those rigorous courses. And they called it, and any Spanish speaker will understand, they called it the pobrecito syndrome, you know, like, <laughs> oh, pobrecito, yeah. no puede, you know, you can't, you can't do this work. So I'm going to, we'll put you in an easy course. And it's, you, you know, there's, there's protecting the, that's important in some ways, but then they're sort of coddling and not being able to. Uh, push somebody there's that like you know and again educational terms here but there's the productive struggle and the zone of proximal development that we need to think about how much do we push so that we get the output that we want which is not only the output that the teacher wants but the output that the student needs to later succeed and more importantly as you mentioned to gain confidence so um it sounds like this conversation all comes back to a counselor who pushed you in that way in the right way so that's great yes such an important role, the role of the of the school um, counselor, and you know many of uh, those counselors are just um, completely overloaded with with caseload, so it's hard for them, I think, to do their jobs effectively. Again, another conversation for another time. Um, okay, so you know you you've you've I've really appreciated in, in both in the, the conversation we had a week ago when we first met and the conversation today. I've really appreciated your um, willingness to talk about the challenges and struggles that you have because on paper. You know, we'll talk about your future in a second, but you're a very successful student. You, I mean, have achieved great things already, and you're about to kind of move on to do some uh, to do some more great things, I'm sure. But you've had your struggles, and you've talked about them. Um, and what I think was really, uh, for lack of a better term, really sort of um, mature about you was was the idea that knowing that you're going to have more struggles, and that everybody deals with with those. Um, I'm curious. Thinking about those struggles that you had, some of which you kind of have to go through, right? And there's not a lot, there's maybe wasn't the support that you needed at the time to deal with them. Given your own experiences, what are some changes that you wish you could make with our educational system to help students deal with these very common struggles that that you had to deal with? Definitely. I would... Wow, uh, <laughs> I would have. It's to a say, it's a it's a big question. I'm asking a lot of you for sure. So tell me if it's. But I think you're like it's your experiences. You're there. You're at the doorstep. And again, we'll talk about it in a minute. Of like, a, a, such an important part of your life. You're a success story in high school. So I'd love to hear from you, like, because it's so important that we hear from people like you about this. Yes, there's you know, with anything, 
everything has flaws, you know, and most definitely the education system in America. And I would have to say, one of the biggest things I would have to say I wish I could change was just that readiness in terms of life skills. You know, I think, I think that's one of the things that the education system really, really lacks because just as there's just this push, there's just this, there's always this push to do, you know, you have to do great. You have to take these AP courses. You have to take these IB courses. And it's always, it's always the next thing, always the next thing. And it's just like, like this constant, I don't I guess, pressure. And I think what we really need is, you know, that's great. You know, the academic success, success is great because, you know, we want our students, our citizens of America to be educated, but also what happens to life beyond education? That's where, that's where our education system is lacking. Where is, you know, the basic life skills, you know, and a lot of our educators assume, well, that's not our role that, you know, that's the parents' roles. But a lot of our instances, a lot of our students, they don't have solid parents that solid those roles aren't being fully fulfilled and that's where as educators we oh i'm not an educator but (laughs) oh we need to we need to step up um and i think just those basic life classes is what could really really help our students kind of just lower the amount of struggles they're going through whether that is you know a, a stress management class um a financial freedom class um how to buy a house how to start credit how to you know do your laundry i don't know um there's just there's a lot of things that we as educators can do to help our students beyond the academic and i think that's what i really want to reach upon that and also you know having being more compassionate as educators i think i say this to say because you know as educators you know you guys have a beautiful heart you guys want to help and teach others but i think being compassionate in the era of in the in the area uh, i mean to you know really understand these students where they're coming from you know yes your 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 school has to reach certain you know, goals, and that's awesome in terms of academics, but always remember that these students are going through something, you know, kind of diminish that pressure to to do so much, especially in high school. I saw so many students that were just so burnt out. Mm-hmm. I think I, thankfully, I, I learned how to manage early on, how to, you know, deal with everything that was going on in my life. And I, I did that through running. I love running. Um, but a lot of students don't know how, and they were just burnt out, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. I think that was yeah. just a little cherry on the top for a lot of our students. A big one, a big cherry on the top. Yes. Yeah. And I think we, as, as educators, um, we need to be more compassionate in that area. You know, there's a, there's a certain limit because you, you have to understand students, these students, you know, early 14, 15, 16, you know, that age, they don't even know who they are yet. And they're trying to balance a social life, academic life, emotional life, you know, at the same time, they're trying to figure out who they are, where they want to be. And it's just, it's so much. And then you have on the side, you know, maybe they have parent expectations. And on the other side, you know, you have educators saying, oh, you have to do this, you have to do this. There's just so much pressure in every angle. And I think that's what can really just add, you know, much more struggles to the students. So I think being compassionate in that area, 
another thing would just be, you know, changing our testing systems. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a different story because I feel like that's um that's a different that's a hard not a hard conversation, but just a very controversial one. Um Yeah, but it's it's related in a way. And like every you said you just said a lot of things, everything from, you know, compassionate to life skills to testing. You you mentioned a lot, but you know, I think for those listening carefully there, I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to um, misinterpret what you said, but it seems to me that the common thread here is connecting school to life, right? You, you, you hear frequently teachers say, and I've been guilty of saying it, although I tried not to, you know, when you get to the real world, things are going to be well, where are we now? Is this a, is not the real world? High school is not the like. Is <laughs> right. it, it, so like, how do you bring the real world in? And the example that you brought up about your teacher who had her own struggles and shared those with you, and that vulnerability piece is an example of something that is real. It's not like, you know, and it, it, it of course is a generational thing with with older people saying, "Oh, I know, I've been through this before." That's hard. That's always been hard. It's always going to be hard. But but for somebody to open up and talk about some of the things that they're uh, that they're dealing with is 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 really important, you know. And and this is not new. I remember being in high school, um, probably younger than you, and, and and my father, who was an immigrant from Greece and who had to drop out of high school to go to work for his family, uh, but really valued the power of education and was was you know uh, so motivated to get. My, my brother and I into 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 college, he always questioned. He said, why, why don't why aren't there classes about exactly what you said? How to buy a house, how to establish credit. How to, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me. And here's a guy who on paper wasn't really educated, but he did all those things later in life. Um, it, it's and it is. It's 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 really an interesting question. And I think that we need to really take a look at not just like the granular pieces, like which courses are going to be useful. Should we have a a course on credit or should we have a course on buying a house and really think about it in terms of what, what you've mentioned. I think the, the kind of the thesis that you've kind of brought up here, which is how do we bring real life into school and how do we bring school out to real life instead of having separate institutions? But let me give you a chance to respond because I want to make sure I didn't misinterpret what you said. No, most definitely. I think you really nailed the spot. Um, definitely. It's just, we need to combine those two because it's like, we're, we're not, we're, we're not two separate people. We're the same person, you know? So, you know, if you're preparing someone to be academic and then another person to be, as we say here, you know, in the streets, um, but, you know, you need to combine those two so you can form a well-prepared citizen overall. Right. Yeah. And, and in order to do that, you need diversity, which is why you need to bring in students who have experiences like yours and who have you know, multilingual and multicultural heritages like 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 yours, or I'm sorry, different heritage, different cultures than maybe the norm of a place, and and bring those uh, those groups together. I think that's so crucially important. And we still have a culture in many ways where we, you know, particularly for English learners or multilingual learners, you know, they they may be in their own sort of little silos of classes, which is important for a while if you're a newcomer. I think that that's, but we have to really think about, you know, how do we bring the whole school and community together. Um, Big, big stuff, big topics, but but worth mentioning. And, and again, I'll, I'll mention that I love hearing your perspective on it as someone who just graduated. Um, so enough about the past. Let's talk about the future. Um, <laughs> you're, you're going to UCLA to study human biology on a pre-med track, which is super exciting. Congratulations on that. Um, 
what inspired you to choose that path and, and what do you hope to accomplish in the in the coming years? Yes, definitely. So um, uh, from an early age, both my parents, um, they grew up with, uh, I grew up seeing them with a lot of um, different illnesses, some being even chronic. Um, so I was always, you know, in and out of the hospital with them. So I, I grew up in that, also in that environment as well. Um, but it wasn't until later, um, you know, high school, where I just, I fell in love with biology. And I think that was another piece that I just felt so, I felt serenity. And it was, it's just, it's so odd to say that a science class can bring me serenity. Um, and it was just like, I felt so calm in that class. And I would just, I would just learn so much about anatomy and my, my biology teacher, Miss Miller, excellent teacher she brought science to life we would go to like so many different field trips based on what we were learning she's incredible um and you know just being in that class brought me serenity and it brought me you know just so many happy memories and i think just i wanted more every day like let's say let's say i was i had to be absent for like a dentist appointment i know this is kind of odd but I would live, I would ensure that I would make it back in time for that class. Like I would, you know, normal students would be like, no, I'm not going back to class. No, I would ensure I would go back to school to just be in class um, because I loved it so much. And, you know, when it came time to, you know, applying to, to school, you know, junior year around that time where you kind of have to rail really in where you kind of want to study. I was just like, this is where, I really find my peace and this is where I really find, you know, joy. This is where I really enjoy my time in. So I, you know, I chose human biology, but in terms of, and you know, in terms of, you know, that pre-med track, what really, what really got to me that I was like, this, this is what I want to do is I, I was a part of a nonprofit organization called Youth for Border Aid. And we work with bringing resources to immigrants. And a lot of this, I, I noticed there was a, a, a lack of diversity in terms of healthcare providers. Um, you know, it's with the, you know, with the statistics, it's less than 2% are, are Latinos. And I think that lack of diversity is what our, the medical field is really, really missing out on. And mm -hmm. I just, I loved working with, you know, my immigrant population. I love, you know, I had a lot of like hands-on clinical experience with that, with that um, organization. And that is where I found it. I was like, this is what I love. This is what, um, you know, and I still have so much to learn. So, you know, um, you know, things could change, but I think for now, this is what I really feel that I just, I love. And, you know, I love working with people. I love the clinical settings. I love biology. So, you know, combine that all together. What do you get? A doctor. So, That's right. That's um, right. So I think um, that was really my why. And I think as, as you grow more into it, as you find more experiences, I feel like my why will really, really just solidify, you know, because that's, you all, in anything that you pursue, you really need a why in order to, you know, those days where you lack motivation, you can go back and see, oh, this is why I do this. So for now, that's my why. But I think as I grow a bit older, I'll find a more solidified, a good, good foundation. What's my why? And I'm, I'm looking for an experience to really look back and just really say, that's why. <laughs> 
Yeah. And good for you for being open to those new experiences and open to change. I think that, you know, you have to be, you can't just say, this is definitely what I want to do. And here's the path I'm going to follow no matter what, because there will be forks in the road that you'll have to make decisions. And some of those will stray from what you kind of had envisioned, but it sounds like you have a really healthy um, outlook on, on those experiences that may or may not change your, your path. Um, to, uh, tell me the name of the organization again that you worked for and had this experience with. Yeah, it's called Youth for Border Aid. Youth for Border Eight. Aid. Oh, Aid. Youth uh. for Border Aid. Okay, I'm writing it down because I want to make sure that we link to it because it sounds like um, that would that's a really interesting place that students like you can kind of look into for those experiences. Sounds like it had really impactful for you. Oh, it was just, it was a wonderful experience. Most of the time we were virtual, you know, because these sure. few years were kind of hard, but just bringing in those resources where we did like donation drives, just bringing in those resources is an incredible feeling. Um, and what I'm trying to get to is just have, push your students to reach beyond the resources available in their local areas. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think I didn't really understand that as um, you know, a freshman sophomore until like my junior year, especially coming from a low income, you know, socially disadvantaged um, you know, city or a little town, whatever you would like to call it. Um, there wasn't a lot of resources, there was not a lot of opportunities, but that within me. It, it, it raised me, it motivated me to find, you know, elsewhere, you know, that organization is located in San Diego. Um, but, you know, I, I live far away from San Diego, California. Um, but I, I pushed myself to find those resources. Right. I was able to, you know, find mentorship. I was able to, you know, start my own mentorship program. You know, I, I created the resources that I didn't have. Um, you know, I, I founded a, um, a mentorship program at a club at my school called You Belong Here Club. Uh, and it was just pretty much dedicated to mentoring freshmen and sophomores to help guide them through, you know, high school and devours. So what I'm trying to really instill is just kind of create those opportunities for yourself, even if they are not presented to you. Yeah. And there's so much, I think of your experience that we didn't talk about, despite everything that we did. So inspirational. Um, but I think that the, I'm hoping that our experience over the last year and a half doing so many things virtually and realizing that it is not difficult to connect with people who may be far away from you. Great example is our conversation now. <laughs> we couldn't be farther away from each other um, geographically, but we're having this conversation. That same thing applies to experiences like the ones that you're talking about. And my hope is that, you know, being doing things virtually for so long that we're going to be, and I, we, I mean, educators, more comfortable, um, uh, providing those kinds of opportunities, even though they may be geographically far away for students, because um, I think it just opens up a whole new set of opportunities, particularly in those communities uh, that may or may not have the resources that others do. Um, and of course, I just say for the record that 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 should not be the case. It shouldn't. The, I feel very strongly, and we all do here at Elevation, that no matter what community you're in, regardless of your zip code, you should have access to the same resources that others do. Again, big issue, another conversation, <laughs> another time. Um, but Paula, I want to I wrap this up by asking a question that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And that's, um, curious if there's a book or maybe a film or another resource um, that has had uh, an important influence on you, either personally or academically, that you'd like to recommend to anybody who may be listening. Yes, so um, I would have to say um, 
I have two books I would love to recommend. You know, okay. I'm a reader, so here you go. Write this down. These books will change your life. Um, so first, I want to start off with The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. Um, incredible book. It teaches you from, you know, just basic social skills to, you know, just financial freedom. It's just the mixture of just amazing different life skills. I'm big on personal development. I love to read those books. Um, so incredible book and an incredible read. Please go get yourself a copy of that. And the second book is Where to Begin by Clay Away. And it's more so poetry, but it's a beautiful book, wonderfully written. It's just, it talks about more so with social issues. It, it all starts with you. It all begins with you, you know, to ending whatever you think a world problem is, it all starts with you. Um, and yeah, two incredible books that I definitely recommend. Great reads. Um, and yeah. Well, I, those have not been mentioned. We've done about 150 of these episodes. So many times the books that, that come up are ones that are, have already been mentioned. Those two have not. So personally, I am excited because I have not read either of them. And so uh, I think I half asked this question about the book for myself and half for the, <laughs> for the <laughs> so I'll, I will check those out for sure. Um, and with that, Paula, it has been just a pleasure getting to know you. Um, we're so proud of you. And I say we as in the, the Elevation family, but also I'm sure all the school districts that we represent, um, certainly your own school district and any listeners out there who are listening to this, um, you know, I'm sure are, are very proud of of the work that you've done and you represent, um, you know, what is possible um, given the right opportunities and given the motivation that you've had to, to do things. And we're just so thankful to help you in a small way um, pursue your goals and and really just, just thank you for taking the time to join us. I should mention too that it is six in the morning or a little later now. We started at six in the morning, your time. Uh, so not only are we doing this, but we're doing this at a very early hour. So with that, Thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate it. And good luck. I uh, wish you nothing but the best in the future. No, thank you. I'm so beyond grateful for all your support, not just you, but the whole Elevation team. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.